This is Hassan Akram, your host for Autonomous Vehicle Safety and Security Podcast, brought to you by Matrix. Welcome to yet another episode of Matrix Tech Talk. Today, I'm super excited to have a very special guest, Professor Thomas Schmitz. Thomas, welcome to Matrix virtually. Thank you, Hassan. So it's an unusual settings. Um, professor Schmitz is actually only one and a half hour drive from here. He is a professor of Technische uh, Hochschule Ulm, which is one and a half hour drive due to COVID-19. We're doing it uh, via Zoom. However, we're going to have a lot of fun. So uh, some words about Professor Schmitz. Professor Schmitz uh, graduated in mechatronics. Uh, and uh, right after that, he went to work for Ford and he worked there for 26 years in product development. So uh, this is the spirit of our podcast that we want to talk to people like Professor Schmitz to get their intuition, their experience, the practical lessons they have learned uh, during their career. So Thomas, why don't you um, tell our audience a little bit about you, your background, your passion? I studied mechanical engineering and mechatronics uh, at, a un at the University of, of Duisburg, and uh, where I also finished my PhD thesis. Uh, during that time, I worked for Robert Bosch in uh, Stuttgart, Schwieberdingen, uh, where uh, yeah, I worked on a research project regarding uh, vehicle dynamics simulation for, uh, for ESP, so for uh, or ESC, Fahrdynamik Regelung in, in, in German. And uh, so uh, I had a pretty much analytical career. Uh, and uh, after that, I thought, hey, what uh, are you supposed to do now? So and first I thought, okay, do something different. And uh, I started a consulting company for a couple of months. And then I realized, hey, that's not what I want to do. And... Uh, then I got the opportunity uh, to uh, hire into Ford, and uh, that was um, impressive for me because Ford, as you know, is a global company, a very technical company. And uh, when I had the offer uh, to hire in, I directly said, said yes. Yeah, and as you said, I do not regret that. I spent there 20, almost 26 years, and uh, I never really had the wish to leave the company because uh, uh, the company could uh, offer me everything uh, I wanted. I had a great time there in various, in various functions in uh, vehicle dynamics. I did uh, functional work in chassis. I did design and release work. I did some mechatronics work, uh, came across driver assist systems. And uh, I had a big global team, right? So I was responsible for global chassis engineering, global suspension in particular, over the last 10 years. So I had a global team where half of my team was located in, in the US, the other pretty much the half in Europe and uh, some, uh, some people across the world in China, India and, uh, and Brazil. So I had the perfect setup. And uh, yeah, then by the end of uh, 2018, 
I realized, hey, there's big change in the automotive industry, and in particular in, in Ford, where we had originally chosen a pretty much uh, decentralized setup, uh, where different regions had uh, different responsibilities. So, uh, in a nutshell, chassis lead was in, in Germany, right? So, the whole chassis management, management team was sitting in Germany, and... Uh, then uh, about uh, one and a half years ago, the company decided to, uh, uh, yeah, to globalize the development pretty much. So all functions, all uh, management functions are now globalized and concentrated in, in Dearborn, in Detroit. At that point in time, I'd already uh, seen that there was an open position at the uh, Technical University of Rome. And I said, hey, that's uh, something which absolutely fits to your skills. So they wanted a professor for chassis and vehicle dynamics. And I thought, okay, this is what I did for 26 years. And since the 1st of March, I'm living now here in Ulm. I'm now eager to start also my, my lectures because, because of uh, the coronavirus. We, did, we weren't able to start as expected in March. So we hope that we can start in... Uh, in April now, in about a week from now. So I'm really looking for another 12 years until I retire in, uh, in this location, in this position. Fascinating. Um, it's so impressive, the career you just uh, depicted here. And so many questions I want to ask you. I don't know where to start. However, you mentioned uh, that you, your team, part of your team was located in the US and you were in Germany. Now we have COVID-19 time. We're doing a lot of remote work. So how was it? How was the experience when your uh, part of your team is remotely located? There's pros and cons, like uh, with everything, right? So uh, the uh, direct contact is still extremely important. This was, is also the reason why I was flying back and forth continuously. So uh, I visited my team several times a year. So uh, usually I, I, I went to Detroit uh, five, six times a year to see my team. And then I spent one or two hour, uh, weeks there. But on the other hand, I also experienced that the online tools and uh, we have been using Webex in, in Ford for, uh, for the online meetings, that these are quite powerful tools. And uh, actually uh, they have uh, the, 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 the big example, the big advantage compared to face-to-face -face meetings sometimes that you directly have the material in front of you, like I see you now, right? So we can uh, share documents, which is uh, quite convenient. And uh, honestly, the first thing I did when I realized, hey, uh, the semester start here in Rome is under risk, the first thing I did is I tried out what are the uh, tools which are available here. Now, I think everybody realizes that most likely we will start with online lessons from uh, the week after next onwards, from the 20th. Mm. My point of view uh, we with this with this online tool we can it's we, we can achieve 80 20 right we have a lot of direct communication which is required also for technical stuff uh, the uh, people need to go here to the rigs and uh, and uh, do some practical work where they need to touch uh, certain systems with their hands but most of the work is still theoretical and my point of view, there's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't make use of these tools 
and then defer the practical stuff to probably uh, the end of the term. And, uh, and then with the 80-20 rule, probably achieve, uh, uh, yeah, achieve still a good quality in, in our lessons here, uh, taking into account in uh, which dilemma we are. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. I mean, it, the, the point that you mentioned in the beginning, that it's a question of getting used to. And uh, I was actually not a fan of home office at all, but getting used to it, there are advantages of it. You save a lot of time because you don't have to do commute. And uh, yeah, and at the same time, as you said, there, I mean, uh, per, in-person contact is absolutely necessary. We also miss that. And thanks for, for that. So my next question would be, you had a long career in the automotive. This podcast, the audiences are about uh, automotive community. They're from the automotive community. So can you share what was your most valuable lesson or lessons uh, that you have learned? What would you advise the youngsters who are a similar career path, who are working in the automotive industry in project execution, uh, what would you advise them? What lessons have you learned? Could, would you share some anecdotes with us? The first thing is uh, probably a personal soft skill lesson, uh, which is do not overestimate uh, what, the, what, what the others know. So uh, in German, you said everybody cooks with water. This is even for young engineers. They should respect what uh, experienced engineers know. But on the other hand, uh, uh, they, they should, with a lot of self-esteem, go in their new job and uh, getting things done, right? Push forward and uh, build on your strength. That is, that is extremely important from the soft skill thing. But at the, at the end of the day, everything is evolutionary, right? So it's, it's not that things uh, change overnight, Sometimes people believe that, that uh, uh, things change overnight. Also with, uh, with new approaches like uh, autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles, like sometimes the uh, legislation, uh, yeah, they make people believe that things change overnight, but we have a lot of technical constraints. And the interesting thing is it is really evolutionary and things change uh, uh, because people pay a lot of attention to details and then they develop ideas further. I admit that there are, that there are technological steps uh, which uh, help us, uh, uh, like microcomputers or, or now sensors, navigation systems, all of that. Uh, but on the other hand, you see everything is developed evolutionary. And, uh, and what, when you look at, for example, autonomous vehicles, uh, people were expecting uh, uh, probably when the, uh, the big hype in the press, in the media came up. What was that, five years ago? About four or five years ago. Everybody was expecting that we will see, uh, yeah, autonomous vehicles on the road probably in 10 years from now. Everybody, now we are in the, in, in the phase where uh, we, uh, we change our expectations, get them, uh, make them more realistic. And, uh, and everybody acknowledges, okay, it's probably not that, that far because all, everything is evolutionary. And 
On the other hand, and there's also something where we can talk about, and if you want to, we can even talk about that in detail, uh, about evolution in, in automotive industry. Uh, this is what I show my students in my first lesson. Uh, I've pulled together some information. Hey, what have we as the automotive industry worldwide accomplished within the last 30, 40 years? And that's uh, a very interesting when you look at that. Uh, when you look, for example, uh, uh, it... Uh, a couple of metrics, and if you want to, we can talk about it in, in more detail. Uh, that, uh, for example, the age of a vehicle when it gets scrapped, uh, it was eight years in 1965, and in 2015 it was 18, right? And there's several other metrics uh, uh, which show uh, what we have achieved uh, with regard to. Uh, environmental friendliness, look at the different uh, uh, emission limits. So uh, we have improved uh, the emissions in the last, whatever, 25 years by, I think, almost 90%, 80 to 90%. Uh, and we have uh, developed new technologies. We have developed uh, luxury features. We uh, uh, so, and I, I always tell the engineers in, uh, and I will tell the engineers in my first lesson, hey, this is an industry branch which is extremely innovative. Uh, we have, uh, uh, there is a lot of money, much more in, than, than in every other industry, which we spent for research, right? It's a hell of a lot of money which the vehicle industry puts into that uh, that is uh, uh, extremely important to produce these, uh, uh, the high number of vehicles in the uh, respective quality so that you have a very, very small variation in between the products. <laughs> For an aircraft, it's different. They just built uh, very few, right? But we uh, built sometimes 300, 400,000 pieces a year of one model, right? They need to be... Uh, uh, within a very small variation. What I tell them as well, hey, all, when you choose your main fields and concentrate on certain areas, look at that, what, what the future is. Admittedly, 100% of all vehicles in future will still have a conventional chassis, let's say, right? They will have steel, control arms, and, and so on. Uh, but on the other hand, we also know that the... Uh, that the content of of new technologies, software, IT, or artificial intelligence uh, controls, right? That will uh, that will increase, and that's also what I told my son, for example. Right, son is twenty three now. He uh, he studied. He he came to me and said, "Hey, should I study mechanical engineering?" And I didn't drive him there. I said, yes, you, it's, it's a good idea. The only thing I said, do something which is innovative. And uh, now he's studying technical uh, cybernetics in Stuttgart. So it's a, it's, it's a very interesting field. And uh, it has the, the potential for the future. Because one thing I realized is also that in modern industry, sometimes these uh, traditional fields like uh, producing parts out of uh, steel 
castings, uh, which is uh, very, very challenging. They are considered probably a little bit negative as old-fashioned technologies. Despite the fact that I have learned that there is a lot of high-tech also in these fields to uh, produce these, uh, these components, and I spend a lot of time doing that, uh, but uh, it's always better when uh, you choose your... Yeah, yeah, and you emphasize during your studies that you select something uh, which has a future and is also considered high-tech in, in, in the future. My, in my time, it was simulation, right? So uh, this is now state-of-the-art, right? Uh, so everybody uh, can simulate, right? Fascinating. I mean, uh, Thomas, you have painted a, a landscape where we can navigate, especially with the evolution uh, that you've mentioned, evolution of automotive. I'm extremely interested in that, and we will dive into that. What do you think, in your opinion, is the reason for uh, you know such a drastic increase of lifespan of a vehicle within 50 years? What, how, how did we achieve this? It is uh, lessons learned, and uh, I call it always prevent recurrence. Uh, prevent recurrence process, so uh, an evolutionary process which we are applying, everybody is applying that more or less uh, uh, stringently. Uh, and what people did is uh, they learn from failures in the past. And uh, I make a couple of specific examples for, for that. Uh, the first one is uh, when you, uh, 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 you need to look at the root cause for the issue. Assume, okay, then you ask your question, uh, hey, why, what are the issues which force the customer, or were the issues 50 years ago, which forced the customer to scrap the vehicle at eight, eight years of age? Were they really technical? And, and that was technical issues. You could also argue, I think that was more what you were arguing about, about lifestyle and want for new products, like uh, uh, from my iPhone 8 to iPhone 9 with one year. Right, but that's that's that, that's not the uh, the case here. Uh, it's really uh, it was really a technical were really technical arguments, and uh, when you look at the major argument which forced uh, people to scrap their vehicles fifty years ago, so it's so early, so early was corrosion, right? So uh, uh, I don't uh, you you still see. You, you do not see any corroded vehicles anymore. And, and then this, this prevent recurrence process, which runs uh, behind the scenes, asks, okay, so corrosion is our issue. Uh, so rust. What can we do to prevent that issue in future? So the technical answer was, was pretty simple, simple in that, at that time. It was hey, uh, let's galvanize the, the bodies, right? And that's what everybody did, uh, uh, did then. Audi, Audi was starting with that, or with their, uh, with their bodies uh, probably, I don't know, 40 years ago, just, uh, I just guess, I'm just guessing. And, and, and from now onwards, you do not see uh, corroded bodies anymore. It's, 
what is important, and I'm just saying that as an example, it is not only the uh, design action. The design action is the necessary prerequisite. What you need to do is you need to apply stable processes. And in this case, also stable manufacturing processes to do things right. And, and this is then resulting into a knowledge base in the, of the individual or OEM, right? And uh, the knowledge base is then the list of requirements which documents the technical evolution, right? And, and, and that's like, uh, I think you, what, what you do is you, do, you, you deal with functional safety and, uh, and SOTIF and all of that, that also writes down requirements, what to do and how to do it, right? And that's what, uh, uh, what is the prerequisite for this evolution that you documented in uh, requirements properly uh, to ensure that these issues never pop up again. And, uh, uh, and as I said, it's, it's important to, do, to introduce these quality processes in hardware and in software, in both, uh, to ensure that you prevent failures from, from happening again. And this is not free of charge. Right. This is also important to, to consider, uh, and uh, this when, when you that when you compare vehicles and the content of vehicles from 50 years ago, and uh, and uh, the vehicles we build nowadays, you see that you just open the hood and then uh, uh, you see big differences. Right. So this is is actually that uh, uh, the typical evolutionary process with the respective documentation which ensures that the products get better continuously. And, uh, and if you apply this uh, stringently, you will uh, gradually see also the, uh, yeah, the successes. And this is when you look at every individual metrics, uh, when you look at warranty, for example, when you look at customer satisfaction, that is significantly uh, getting getting better. On the other hand, profits is a different story, right? This is the adverse effect. Uh, very, very few things come for free. Now, from today to another 10, 20, even 50 years, do you see that the lifespan of a vehicle is going to increase? We're moving toward an era where the current business model of automotive industry might be even challenged or interrupted. So not right now, the OEMs make money by selling vehicles, number of vehicles, the, the concept of vehicle ownership, we own a vehicle. There are ideas that vehicle will be only your means from going point A to point B, so it will be service-based like Uber, Lyft, Waymo, for example, up to a certain extent, Tesla, one of the OEMs, talked about it. Now, if that's the business model, uh, will it impact the lifespan of the vehicle and how the evolutionary path may look like, in your opinion? It will. Uh, and uh, 
I think uh, there is there, there's a couple of of, of aspects which which are important. Uh, car sharing is uh, is something which is very diff different, and uh, we are starting to uh, get the first experiences with with car sharing. Uh, and uh, what what we see in Germany, at least, that the public is not really uh, uh, picking up that I idea as uh, as people thought in the first place. But if uh, this idea of uh, autonomous transport vehicles, uh, if this idea is uh, is proceeding, things will change because then the situation is, is very similar to taxis, right? The usage of a taxi, and this is, is, is an interesting thing that you say Uber or, or, or taxi, uh, the usage pattern of a taxi is so different that uh, the automotive OEMs, uh, they cooperate with taxi fleets in order to get early warnings of, of issues because the aging, of the taxi fleet is so so uh, uh, so different and so much accelerated compared to uh, to a standard passenger car that the pick that the issues pop up so much earlier and that is a very important indicator for us and that's the same now when we go to car sharing and uh, and autonomous and partially autonomous vehicles if we're moving away from this uh, privately owned to a shared concept then the usage pattern will change and uh, uh, from the uh, technical standpoint probably when we apply the current requirements the vehicles could survive uh, uh, even longer but uh, some things uh, uh, are driven then also by the mileage and when the mileage and the usage patterns increase get more severe vehicles uh, will need to get replaced much earlier uh, so and and the the most important thing is to harmonize all of that, if I have now a usage pattern where based on the pure usage, uh, the mileage is accumulated in a much smaller time period uh, and uh, the vehicle's gonna be uh, probably at the end of its lifespan at whatever, let's say, let's say five years, right? Hey, what is the benefit uh, if I have a body which, which lasts 18, right? So then I over-design. And, and this is, this is uh, very challenging to ensure that uh, you have this right balance, that all of the systems, that uh, they reach the end of their life uh, at pretty much the same point in time in order to ensure that you design cost-efficiently and you don't over-design. And, and, and this is something... Uh, uh, which will really is is with, that makes life more complicated in the automotive industry because then uh, we need to diversify our requirements based on the usage uh, much more than we did it so far and uh, and that is that is one aspect and it's a, it's the same now with the different regions right with the different regions we have also different usage requirements. A vehicle uh, uh, in China, in India, in South America, in the US and, and, and the, in, in Europe, we cannot design them with, with the same requirements because the, uh, the regional requirements uh, are different. And, and that's the same with, uh, uh, with the vehicles which we will have in future. If it's a privately owned vehicle, 
we can probably stick pretty much with that what we have now. If it's a shared autonomous usage, we will we'll, we'll need to come up with totally new requirements, updated ones. And uh, yeah, that's what uh, we need to ensure that we understand that upfront because knowing that upfront is, is pretty important to uh, design accordingly and ensure that you meet the customer expectations to 100% uh, and in parallel be profitable, right? This is, a, this is important. If you don't uh, reach that balance in between function and profitability, profitability, you're dead. Fascinating. So I love the concept that you've just mentioned that even if we move to a service-based car sharing scenario where ownership is not important anymore, the usage of a particular vehicle will be so much higher with uh, compared to a private ownership that the lifespan will reduce. That could also mean the vehicle manufacturer will probably have to produce more cars because of less lifespan. And as you've rightly mentioned that there is no point of designing the body for 18 years when you know that within, within five years this will be scrapped. With that, um, Let's move a little bit toward uh, vehicle dynamics, the, your area of expertise. So can you talk a little bit about the kind of like another evolutionary picture of vehicle dynamics in, in your experience? Could you, could you tell our audience a little bit about that? So vehicle dynamics. When I hired in, into Ford, which is, uh, as you know, 26 years ago, which was 26 years ago, are, I, uh, I realized that vehicle dynamics was uh, pretty much, at that point in time, it was pretty much a tuning shop. It was uh, 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 a totally different discipline uh, than it is, is now. Uh, the, uh, the, the tuning work happened usually locally uh, at the proving grounds of the individual OEMs. And... Uh, there were subjective evaluators, engineers, uh, who were really capable to evaluate a vehicle for the respective attributes. And when I say attributes, I mean uh, the functional attributes of vehicle dynamics. Uh, and usually you, you talk about handling, uh, you talk about steering, you will talk about ride comfort, you talk about braking, and you talk about road NVH. So these are the, uh, the sub-attributes of, of vehicle dynamics. And the only tool these uh, people had was their own perception, right? They were able to drive a car, uh, do an evaluation, do an evaluation compared to other vehicles, come, uh, and also to vehicles in different uh, configurations. And the components they touched at that point in time were uh, pretty much... Uh, reduced to just springs, dampers, shock absorbers, right? So very, uh, uh, and, and, and stabilizer bars, probably a bump stop. So uh, it was a pretty limited set of variables they touched. And, uh, and what they just did is then they uh, put these cars, uh, these components in the, in the car, evaluated them, and then they found the, uh, the best combination and that was it. And 
And frankly, uh, when you compare the performance of these vehicles, uh, which were in, uh, in the field by the beginning of the 90s, uh, they, they, they were, apart from a couple of exceptions, pretty bad, because that was done across all OEMs, that, that approach. Uh, at that point in time, there was also no, uh, no uh, semi-active or active system on the market. We'll come to that later. Good. So then, uh, probably uh, the, the, the first big step in the evolution of vehicle dynamics was then the holistic approach, which was applied across the board uh, in industry, probably from the, uh, from the middle end of the 90s, considering that uh, apart from the old-fashioned subjective development, our new methods need, had to be applied. And new methods meant uh, an analytical approach doing CIE and, uh, and objective testing. So that uh, is then probably the, the, the magic resolution to uh, the magic formula is put these three, three things together and apply them properly and apply them holistically within one team. So it, it uh, is not sufficient to have these, uh, these different disciplines in different teams. Really, you need to combine them in, in one team. And that was, for me, the opportunity to do this in my first uh, probably almost 10 years or eight or 10 years of my career to apply this approach to get to know really the subjective evaluations because I, I came from the university, had no clue of, everything, of anything at that point in time, uh, was really uh, amazed what these uh, engineers who have been doing that for 20 or 30 years were able to perceive in the car, how they were able to drive a car. So, and uh, how precisely they were able to drive a car on a handling road, very precise lap times and, and all of that. And uh, that was a huge learning uh, uh, success for me. But on the other hand, I also see that there is a natural limit. So apply these uh, new tools. Adams, for example, is the software tool, which is applied across the board, across in the uh, uh, all OEMs use this, and objective testing. And with that approach, and also the respective, and uh, I said that before when I talked about prevent recounts, documented processes, uh, it was uh, possible to, uh, to move the vehicle dynamics performance uh, of uh, the first product, which was done with this new approach, to a much, much higher level. So that was really uh, a, a step in function which was possible to achieve applying these, these tools all simul simultaneously. And then uh, the... Uh, the next step in that process was, hey, good, now we, know, now we have learned how to do that. Now we need to document it and uh, ensure that we can also repeat it, right? Uh, this is, uh, is also quite important. We want to be able to stable, repeat a result, a positive result. Then we came across the uh, development process. Hey, what is the development process for the attribute, in this case, vehicle dynamics? Uh, what are the uh, right targets to set? And then you, you, you start to develop 
uh, things like objective to subjective correlations, where you really uh, measure vehicles, or uh, you measure certain, certain parameters, uh, how the vehicle behaves. With customers in the vehicles, you try to find out, hey, what is the right parameter or what is the right function of, of parameters to ensure that the customer likes the vehicle? And this uh, was a tremendous effort. I think in the meantime, uh, the industry is pretty much there. It's pretty well defined on vehicle level, also to uh, uh, what the customer wants. And it's really a chain of command. And we talked about uh, a week ago about the systems engineering and the V. This is pretty much that uh, what what is applied there. You. And you, you try to understand from the typical customer in customer terms, in customer terminology, hey, what is that what you want? Uh, and he may talk about the steering, which is, hey, which is too nervous, a vehicle which is fun to drive, a vehicle which is uncomfortable, a vehicle which is choppy, something, something like that. The typical customer words. Uh, but... What does that mean in terms of objective metrics? And this is then what we have been trying to generate a mapping of that, what the customer wants from the customer terminology to the engineering terminology on subjective terms to the vehicle level requirements in objective terms. And then the V, as you know, starts with a cascading. You cascade from vehicle level to system level, to component level, because this is the interface then in between the functional engineer who just defines, hey, that is the function of the car, and the component design and release engineer who releases the component. The steering gear, for example. The steering gear design, which you finally release, that needs to support the overall function. For example, make it easy, the boost curve or the steering ratio of a steering gear. That means how fast uh, you, uh, the angle changes when you turn the steering wheel, this uh, transfer function. That is something uh, which you need to define and, and document. And this is uh, probably, uh, yeah, this is where we have been a couple of years ago. That is state of the art. This uh, we are now able across the industry to uh, to develop vehicles uh, from scratch, just with CAE tools. And when we build the first prototypes, apart from the build errors, uh, to uh, get to 80, 90 percent of the required function just based on, on CIE and our processes. And then there's a little bit of fine tuning and the vehicle gets, uh, can be released to the customer. So that's the passive side. The other side is then what's happening now with the new possibilities we have with mechatronics and, and controls. I sometimes draw a graph to my people where I say, okay, when we just look at passive systems, uh, we are pretty much in the area where we have done every, almost everything and we are converging. If we want to achieve an improved function, we need to invest too much. Uh, so we are, we, there, there's not too much to gain there. And this is now the time where we apply our semi-active and active systems 
to get a step change in, in, in the function. I think Mercedes, they started with the SL, uh, with adaptive damping in the 70s or something like that for the first time that they used adaptive shock absorbers where you have uh, a soft setting, a hard setting and, uh, and a means medium setting. And then in the meantime, uh, now everybody is offering, everybody is, is offering semi-active systems where I can con continuously adjust the damping uh, to improve the, uh, the performance, the ride and handling performance of, of the vehicle. So that is, is one, one possibility. And this, is, this technology has been uh, on the market for, for many years now. It's, uh, it's state of the art, this semi-active technologies. Semi-active really means without additional uh, energy, I just change settings, okay. The but is, even with this semi-active technology, the customer has to make a choice. The customer has to make the choice uh, what he wants to spend for that in, in, in improved function. And when you ask most, most customers driving a passive vehicle now, hey, would you spend 1,000 euros for a comfort feature which improves your comfort? Uh, it, 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 and, and it improves the comf comfort gradually. It's not uh, uh, that it is really earth-breaking, the, the change. It is a significant improvement in performance, but for a cost of 1,000 euros. So the take rates pretty much give the answer. Most, most customers do not select that option because they would rather spend their money for a large navigation screen or for, for other features, uh, for, uh, for a rear camera. So... That pretty much also puts into perspective where we already are with the passive systems and the customer demand for something better. And now with the discussion about autonomous vehicles, there is a new debate which is ongoing because People consider, or will probably consider, when we get to full autonomous in many years from now, they will consider their vehicles uh, totally differently and use it, the vehicles totally differently. The main function is always transportation from A to B. But what will people do is they will uh, potentially use an autonomous vehicles in, uh, as, a, as a business device. They would... Uh, do their work like uh, like we do it now. It's my second office, right? I may do it, uh, use it as a leisure device, reading uh, and TV. It could be something which I do. I could use it as a communication device, uh, just speak to people when I have a long journey, or it could even replace my uh, my living room, right? It, it it could replace my sleeping room partially, right? It has it's a totally different usage, and and with that. Also, in terms of the requirements, uh, the customer focus will totally change. Also, in terms of the seating arrangements, the, uh, the customers will not look forward anymore. They will not pay attention to traffic anymore. What is then with all of the acceler accelerations which will act on, on their bodies? Will uh, they perceive it differently? Or what, what do I need to do differently? 
and in uh, scientific conferences uh, a lot of uh, OE, uh, a lot of suppliers always they they try to uh, persuade the OEMs that active suspensions that's what what we need in future as soon as we go to uh, autonomous vehicles we need active suspensions because uh, this is uh, uh, quite important to ensure that we do not have any disturbance due to vehicle pitch roll and uh, and heave movements i don't know if uh, if this is really true this is something which which i want to find out probably this is some some research i think we will do here in the next uh, in the next couple of years to find that out what is really that what is different on these autonomous vehicles and there are so many uh, uh, different uh, discussions which which pop up now uh, you can uh, get rid of the whole steering system because there is no steering anymore right so uh, this is relatively easy that uh, that drives cost down at least the customer interface this is no longer there uh, what 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 about uh, uh, crash crash is also the same right if i uh, have the uh, possibility to avoid a crash in future then i don't need uh, these uh, crash optimized uh, vehicle bodies anymore right so many functions are optimized for passive safety will we move from passive safety to 100% active safety in, in, in future so that we avoid accidents. I'm, uh, this is, is, is quite, uh, quite interesting. So it's really uh, uh, very interesting in, uh, to work in this field. And I'm e eager to know the answers. I don't know yet, uh, but it's interesting fields of work for, uh, for the future. And, uh, and it's still, everything needs to be profitable uh, and we always need to ask the customer hey is that what we are offering to you is that what you you are willing to pay fascinating so you talked about 100 percent active safety that we might move toward which is, is even gonna reduce cost and uh, you talked about there are some questions that you don't know the answer to. You would like to probably research on it in your university in the, in the upcoming time, years. That is the perfect segue to move to the next question I want to ask you, which is um, many of our audience are pursuing or willing to pursue an aut automotive career path like yourself. What advice would you have if someone wants to pursue such career path? I think uh, the, the field of uh, the automotive engine engineer will change. It will become more diversified. It's now really a multi-dimensional education, which, which is important. And since uh, it's impossible for one person to, uh, to learn all of that, it's really uh, different teams coming coming together. I think what what we will do is here the uh, in Ulm uh, we will focus more into this uh, into this field of artificial intelligence, autonomous driving, educate the people uh, more into into that direction. In the past, it was so easy. You needed a, a chassis person, a vehicle person, a, a, an electrical person, a body person, and a, and a, and a engine person pretty much and then you were able to build a car and now it's 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 you need that still but you need all of these experts uh, 
with uh, regard to information-related technologies uh, to uh, build these cars in, in future. And, uh, and you see that, uh, that also companies like, uh, like Google and, and Apple, they, they all uh, tried or are still trying to build vehicles, uh, but uh, they thought it would be so, so easy to start from their side and they would easily learn uh, the, uh, yeah, the assets of, uh, of old-fashioned automotive companies. And in, in the meantime, they realized that it was not so easy, apart from Tesla, who pretty much did it, uh, 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 did it right. And they seem to have uh, really understood, uh, uh, besides the new technology, also how to do the old-fashioned stuff. And yeah, so like like uh, in the, that is the direction we'll be will be proceeding. We'll be setting up new uh, uh, master the the fields. Now I need to translate them because I have the German brochure here. The fields we will identify ourselves uh, as part of uh, Ulm Technical University is 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 five pillars, right? It's modern mobility. It's digital technologies. It is uh, uh, regenerative and sustainable energy systems, uh, health and medicine, and intelligent industrial systems. So this, these are the, the five fields, all uh, prerequisites in future, which we will need to build successful automotive products. Yeah, I mean, what you just mentioned, the areas, it's, this is exactly the, the, the technological disruption that's coming up, like connected vehicle, digital, you talked about digitalization, you talked about sustainable energy, electric vehicle, AI, autonomous vehicle. These are the things I, I totally agree with you that is absolutely necessary. With all these uh, disruptive technology you talked about, you mentioned four areas, and you have advised the, the youngsters to, to focus in these areas. What do you think would be the best thing, the most positive thing for us due to these technologies? One important point is uh, the, the realism. Sometimes I am lacking uh, realism uh, for things. Then uh, you see that a hype is coming up and, uh, and all of a sudden decisions are made uh, which are immature. And this is what, what we all need to avoid. We need to uh, be realistic and really uh, acknowledge that evolution is, is, is the right thing for all of us, taking also the uh, total economy in, uh, uh, into account and uh, avoid really the disruptive rush and uh, uh, to me one example uh, to explain that probably is uh, is uh, what what we are doing now with battery electric vehicles and uh, uh, banning the diesel it is currently ruining uh, uh, the industry in particular in, in, in Germany and uh, people are, and the decisions are just based on uh, pressure from uh, from media and, and and politicians without looking at at real real facts. We are currently penalizing diesel technologies and make people believe that tomorrow we are all happy with uh, battery electric vehicles. And now and everybody knows that uh, everybody who is getting more into the details knows that that is 
is absolutely not true. We all know that battery electric vehicles are a very useful tool uh, longer term for certain usage types to reduce the uh, CO2 and, and, and the emissions. I'm really in favor of, uh, of doing that. And, uh, but the prime fields uh, of uh, battery electric vehicles are uh, currently uh, short to uh, midterm distances. And uh, second is we need to ensure that we also get uh, sufficient or uh, clean, uh, clean energy in order to uh, deploy them. And then we need to build up the whole infrastructure and all of that, what was in the news. Uh, but people uh, currently, in, in our minds, the, uh, the, the diesel is, is a dirty animal, and this is absolutely not true. The modern combustion engines are still uh, the right, uh, a good way of transportation, in particular for longer distances. When you uh, consider are the uh, newest diesel technologies, Euro 6 uh, uh, D-Temp, uh, the emissions are so low or, and uh, that uh, uh, there is, uh, that I do not understand this, this, this technical, this, this, uh, this public discussion. And uh, I would wish we all uh, are more realistic rather than have the pendulum swing from side A to side B, probably to find a balance, the best balance, the best optimum for, for all of us, for, for mankind, uh, and something which is really uh, realistic, sustainable for the future. And, and that, uh, the diesel was just, just one example. There's, there's several more. And uh, I think then uh, we'll also ensure that the, our total system, our total system in consisting out of people, environment, industry, uh, the, the, the total mankind and that what we have accomplished, that that will survive without big, big issues. Fascinating. Thomas, it was really stimulating. I've learned so much from this session. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. It was lovely having you here. It was a pleasure for me as well. You had very interesting questions. Yeah, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, stay in touch with you. Looking forward to probably have another session sometimes. So thank you so much for watching the episode. If you have questions, comment, please feel free to write below. And thank you so much for watching.